Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> ah, sweet mystery of life, at last I found you. Ah, at last I know the meaning of it all. <laughs> I don't think you were on key on that one, no. but okay. <laughs> podcast about Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy. Do you think anybody, our aunt who's 95, now she's heard of them, but when you get out of that age range, it's only weirdos like me, I think. Love to know if other people like them. I wonder too, I'd never heard of them before. I'd never seen any of their films until you came up to me one day and was like, Zoe, we're watching a musical. It's time for you to be introduced to... uh, (laughs) Naughty Marietta? Naughty Marietta, yeah. I guess we better start talking about them. I guess we better crack this egg open and, and kind of get into the, the deal. So Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy were a singing duo in the uh, mid-1930s to the very early 1940s. It's something that Hollywood liked to do back then. It doesn't happen as much now because there is no studio system as such. But they would have a number of contract players and they might find a pairing that the populace really liked. And like their first movie, for example, the Thin Man movies with uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy. Super successful. So they made five more with the same stars because these people were under contract to one studio. And so they had control over their schedules and they could put them together. The same thing happened with Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy, who were both fantastic singers, and they were making their way in Hollywood, and uh, they were put together in a film called Naughty Marietta. So Naughty Marietta was a pre-existing operetta. It was first presented in 1910, and the film Naughty Marietta is 1935. So 25 years later, it was still popular and was being performed on Broadway in various places at different times, and Hollywood bought the rights to it and presented it with Jeanette and Nelson. They were contracted to MGM. MGM was known for its musicals. That was its thing, so this makes perfect sense. What else can I tell you about them specifically is that they were big. They were important. They, everybody knew who they were. They were, you know, big, big A-list stars at the time. And of course, now no one's ever heard of them. I first heard about them, I think, when I used to go to that Cleveland Repertory Theater, uh, that, I think Naughty Mary, I'm sure Naughty Mary was the first movie I saw them in. Probably a double feature of the two of them. And that was where I first heard of it. You said that your mom also had some records. You're right. I didn't, but I, I kind of discount that because I brushed that from my mind as being old and stupid. <laughs> yes, you're right. My mother was a, uh, was an opera singer, not really professionally that much. She did a little bit of singing professionally, but but she did sing opera. And she had 78s at the time, probably from when she was young. When I was young, 33 LP33s were the thing. Yeah, I guess this bears stating that when you would have seen the, been seeing these old movies from the 30s and 40s at the repertory theater, it was well into the- Maybe late 70s, early 80s. Okay. 
And so these are, films would have originally been done when your mom was young. Yeah, exactly. Just wanted to clarify the t- timeline for listeners. Right. But she had records of them. And because they, they were popular for a long, long, you know, quite a long time. Because even after they finished their last film in 1941, uh, they had albums uh, and they individually went on tours and sang and so forth. So they, for another 10, 15 years, they were part of the culture and, and important. But, you know, of course, as their audience aged, then they kind of began to age out of their central place in the culture. I'm sorry, we got distracted there. Yeah, my mother had 78 records. So, I, you know, she would play them a Occasionally, I never played them. She had one for a very famous song that they sang in, in their film, Rosemary, called The Indian Love Call. When I'm calling you. When I'm calling you. Needless to say, it is uh, not a culturally authentic. No, not at all. That is not at all. It was written uh, by, you know, a composer for an operetta. You're right. That's the first time I heard of them. But because they, uh, the audience had mostly aged out and my age group, if you even had heard of them, were like, oh, that's old. Or, Or they were kind of tainted with the brush of being really corny, super corny. And so it was like, ugh, you know, that would just be ugh. So, but because this repertory theater played the film, and I usually would go Saturday and Sunday and watch the double feature, because reminding you all again, we did not have VC, even have VCRs at that time. So unless you saw something on TV on one of the old old channels or local channels that played old movies, there just wasn't, wasn't available. So I would go, and I, of course, if it was there, I went to see it. And uh, it was a revelation. The first time I saw it, I'm like, what is this? Oh, my God. Why, you know, huh? Why are people that t- still talking about this? This is great. So the very first film I saw was the first film they made together. It was Naughty Marietta, as I said. 1935, it was made. I probably saw it, well, let's see. I started going there. It was after high school. I was in college but it was probably a couple years after I was in college. It was probably close to 78, 79, 80 was when I was going. And I was just like, I love this shit. Excuse my language. Then from there, I saw a few more of their films. And some of them I liked, some of them I didn't like. And we'll talk about them individually. But that's, that is the benchmark. If you're going to watch any McDonald Eddie movie, that's the one to watch. So I love that. And then came the point where I'm going, okay, you are ready. You've been primed. I've educated you. I've groomed you <laughs> in the old movie ways. You are ready to watch this with a an eye that will appreciate it. Yeah, and I think you showed it to me in either late middle school or high school. And I actually, I still didn't, I didn't think I would like it. And it was on VHS at the time. I'm sure there's been a DVD release since then of some of these movies. But so I was prepared because I knew it was an operetta and stuff for it to be corny, as you said. And I didn't 
kind of didn't think I would like it. And then I ended up being like, oh, that was awesome. Yeah. And it, for me, for sure, their musicals generally, um, they're camp to me. There's a campiness to There's them. a campiness. But it's awesome. But the campiness is full of their own self-recognition that this is light. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think they think, oh, this is corny, this is ridiculous. But I think they think, this is light, this is airy, this is not serious stuff. Except the music itself, which is very demanding music. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that makes it play. Mm-hmm. But they also tinge it with the performer's... Sincerity. Sincerity, and they're fully giving themselves over both to the pathos, the emotion, and to the comedy and the lightness of it. So I think that they hit exactly the right mark to make it still play today, where if they if they skewed too far one way or the other, like I'm thinking of other old movies where it's supposed to be comedy, it's all like, and you're just going, oh, I can't stand, I'm just going to lose my mind, this is so... Grading, yeah. Grading, exactly. And this isn't, it's smooth. It goes down, it really, it's like, it goes down smooth. It's like a really highly aged whiskey that you're going, there's no bite to that. That just goes down smooth. (laughs) I think one of the things is that even though, so it's a mixture of, it's like a romantic comedy with some drama elements. And even though the drama's heightened in a way that nowadays would be, it's very unrealistic. The quality of the writing, the dialogue is often, in the best of these movies, is very clever. In a way that we actually don't get to see very much in modern comedies that may be less Yes, it's got the, it's got the same wit of, as, it's got the wit of like a screwball comedy or a romantic comedy of the period, the snappy wit mm-hmm. and, and the banter. Mm-hmm. It's got that. And it also has the music which is there? It's operatic in tone, so this is not singing in the rain or Busby Berkeley, you know, which is sort of popular. But it's operetta, so it's operatic voices with the high soaring notes, which I think again tend to tarnish them in the eyes of like the subsequent generation because that's old timey corny kind of singing. But they sing these beautiful duets together. They have beautiful, beautiful voices. The acting is quite competent, not brilliant, but it's quite competent and charming. Maybe I should just tell you a little bit about Jeanette and Nelson. Yeah, I want to hear about them because the other thing that's really special is actually their real life relationship. Right. the thing that like is really, um, maybe, maybe I wouldn't feel this way if I didn't know, but I feel like it's at the core of what makes them a successful so good. team. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. I agree with it. It kind of it creates a, a synergy of their talents. Well, basically, there's really not a whole lot to say. This is not going to be one of my research-heavy episodes because I wasn't really that interested in, like, where they were born, how they It isn't like our a recently completed series on Rudolph Valentino who his every moment of his life was kind of fascinating because of the kind of person he was. These people, they tended to be... It's interesting enough, but they tended to be pretty, like, normal, middle American kind of people, you know? But Jeanette was born in 1903, and she died very sadly in 1965 of uh, cancer, and that was really sad. Uh, and then Nelson, he was born in 1901, and he died in 1967. So they had a pretty contemporaneous lifestyle, and uh, they both sang on stage uh, in operas and in operettas and in popular music as well, because at that time, that kind of uh, operatic technique was still could be used in popular music as well. Once we got, in, of course, into the 60s, 
even into the 50s, the bifurcation was becoming very, very stark. But because Hollywood had hired uh, a number of these singers, such as Deanna Durbin, who was a very operatic singer, she, who was very young, and she was a contemporary, uh, contemporary of Judy Garland, who, like, Judy Garland is interesting because she's got the voice, but it's not really an operatic voice. So kind of see that. She was considered a rival to Deanna Durbin, who had a very operatic voice. So you can kind of see that they could be considered interchangeable in a certain way. So that, yeah, that was sort of the beginning of the divergence yeah. between the styles. In those, in those particular instances, in that, in that particular venue of the Hollywood, and I think mostly had to do with the fact because Hollywood was taking over. And remember, sound is only 10 years old. So I think it had a lot to do with the way sound developed and the way Hollywood began to present musicals. And I don't, I'm not a scholar on this matter, so I don't know exactly why, but I think it just was more popular because any kind of thing operatic was considered highbrow. And Hollywood kind of like always wanted to be highbrow, but they had to go lowbrow because basically what we call the money was. Yeah. That's where the money was. I mean, because that's the fun jazz and stuff. So, that was the fun stuff. I, I kind of want to say, I'm going to give a little completely unbased theory here, okay. but I also want to say that with those types of musicals, probably a big part of where the money for those come from and the popularity is ordinary people being able to sing them popular bands at dance halls being able to play those tunes, the reproducibility of it, like mm. operetta requiring highly trained voices and everything. It's People aren't going to be able to go see it and then sing it casually. Well, I also think it's the, it's the medium because, again, now they have microphones, they can get up in there, they can dub you, so they could create a lot of these more jazzy kind of songs. But if you even look at Broadway today and you look at, at the big shows... Those people are using operatic technique. They're singing pretty much opera. They're not singing in the style of a rock band or a jazz singer or whatever because even though they're mic'd now, which they didn't used to be, in th- these days they weren't mic'd, and boy, you better be able to sing in that operatic technique because that's the only thing that's going to get you to the back stalls. Right. But even today, even with the miking, they still have to have a pretty strong voice. And so I think that you have a good point there, and I think that melded with the fact that that people are getting these songs, they can hear them through the movies as well as on the radio, and they want to be able Mm, to reproduce them. It's also that the medium itself can accommodate other kinds of techniques and other kinds of voices. Yeah. But we're still here in this point in the 30s where a lot of the singing and what was considered highbrow and quality and prestige would be the operatic style. Give a little description of Jeanette and a little description of oh. Nelson, just so people have a picture in their okay. minds when we're talking oh, about well, them. Well, what I would say is that they each had separate careers before they were paired in Hollywood, but Jeanette had the more successful career. So that's why it's always Jeanette McDonald and then Nelson Eddy, because mm-hmm. she was the bigger star and she was the draw. She had done several successful films, particularly being paired with the French singer Maurice Chevalier, if you've heard of him who he did not have an operatic technique at all. He was kind of a talky, singy guy. So there we see they're melding her operatic technique, and then they have, but they didn't sing duets in the same way that right. she and Nelson did. So anyway, she was very famous, and she's quite charming and had a career, and she's very slender, which is not what you expect with an operatic singer, and she had red hair and long, you know, flowing locks and big blue luminous eyes and pale alabaster skin she is and she's just adorable she's very light and airy in her persona and in her delivery and everything and she's got this really really cute nose because it's not the typical beauty nose 
so that when you see it in profile, it's just like really kind of petite, but just a little bit Roman, a little bit hooked to, to just kind of give it like a real little bit of character. Pretty adorable. Yeah. Yeah, and she is. She's very light. She's really good with the comedy and the cute little banter. And so it's not great acting because she's really kind of the same pretty much. But she has a range of emotion too. She can be really sad or uh, yearning and very uh, funny and spunky. You know, and I think one more thing I want to say about her is that she's got this air where there are some stars that are maybe would kind of be grouped in a general same area as her who feel inaccessible in some way Mm -hmm. and or they have a specialness about them and that's why they're the leading lady and she just projects such like a friendly aura that i don't know i think that's one of her best qualities it is when you're watching her and relating to her at the time but i think that that's what has made them die out of popular culture because if you're a marlena dietrich you're iconic yeah. yeah and you're garbo you are untouchable but you're iconic because it's almost like there is this entity outside of who you are that is has its own life whereas with Jeanette she doesn't have that outside entity she's her and right. she kind of retains her own in, uh, identity yeah, yeah I think you're right and I think the same thing with Nelson yeah and Nelson now Nelson's very interesting because he was considered handsome in those days and I'll tell you 1930s and 40s handsome is not the same as it is today no definitely not. really is not he was blonde he was kind of like in my mind just like a solid dad not, I mean, he's good looking. Well, but... I see. I don't even think he's good looking. <laughs> I would say he's not bad looking. Would be. I, he's not bad looking. That's how I would say it. <laughs> he's a little bit fleshy. Got a little, tiny little bit of a double chin every now and then when he's mm-hmm. in a certain thing. He's full fleshed. Yeah. I don't mean to say he's fat because he's not. No. He has that singer's body. You get the sense that he has this big, powerful chest. Yeah, and the diaphragm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But he's very lively. It's interesting because he's the male singer, so he's a baritone. But he's not basso, so he's not got the deep voice. But he's got a very manly voice and a very powerful voice. And through it, he projects a lot. But he's really a singer, primarily. I think, okay, can I say it now? Yeah. Okay. Every time we watch a film with Jeanette and Nelson, I have to shout. It's not fair. He's not a singing capon. He's charming. At the time, there was something about people thought he was stiff. And in comparison to Jeanette, who is so light and airy and cute. Expressive, yeah. And expressive. He's not. He's not at her level in that way. But he's a very expressive singer. And if you watch him off to the side while she's doing stuff, he's got got his eyes full of admiration. He's jocular. He's charming. I think he can even be a little impish sometimes. Oh, he's very, he is very impish, actually. I definitely think he is. And I don't know why, but what they called him was the singing capon. So it really has more to do with his body type, I think, in that a capon is a bird that is raised to be slaughtered. Capons are chickens, which are not very intelligent, and they strut around with their big puffy chests out. Yeah. So that was the the, the insult that was hurled at Nelson, and yeah. it's completely unfair. I do think it's unfair, and I also, I kind of see, uh, if you've listened to our Rudolph Valentino series, we talk a lot about male jealousy mm. and male denigration. I kind of see that in that epithet as well. Right. Because Cause men were writing that, not women. Right. And I think maybe the fact, I'll, I'll make a little theory here that maybe things that contribute to that, the fact that he was paired with a woman who was more famous than him, mm. and yet he supported that. And he, he's absolutely the leading man, but he was kind of her co-star 
like support the fact that he wasn't projecting enough macho-ness about yeah. it. They were absolute equals. You know? Yeah. And so he wasn't like Clark Gable who dominated, even if a woman fought back and had her sass to say, in the end, you know, men would turn women over their knees and spank them. But that there's always like this, you could tell in the performances, if yeah. not always in the characters, there was this level of respect yeah. and admiration, actually, that they had for each other. Because it was mutual. It wasn't just him admiring her. But I agree with you. That isn't what was... Yeah, and it's funny because he plays... His roles are often very, very much manly men. And he's very much like, you know, a little patriarchal with her. Like, their characters in the movies, he's kind of more patriarchal and stuff. But you just don't feel that from him. He doesn't yeah. feel that way. Which So it's a very intangible thing that I'm trying to get at. But No, I, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you. And they sing so well together. And you, and you see that equality... Mm-hmm when they're singing together, because you can hear them both, uh, their voices twine beautifully. Before we talk about the movies, let's go ahead and talk about why we think that is. And this is a little bit controversial because some some say yes, some say no. But it was always the question at the time, are they in a relationship? Are they together? Are they in love? And for their most of their lives, for all of their lives, I guess, they denied it publicly that they had any kind of relationship. They'd laugh at it <laughs> and say how irritating it was everybody thought of it. But there is documentation, apparently, and again, I, I don't know. I have not done research not with, the, with, the, with the primary, but I believe it. I believe it entirely because when you watch them on screen and with the evidence that there is, I think it's totally supported. They are so in love with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not, I mean, yes, there's passion, but it's a love of equals. It's a love of two artists and two people who just really are into each other. Now, they never married, and they hid this because it would have been uh, poss- probably the death of his career, and it would have been a blow to her career probably because the, the uh, studio that, that they were at, the studio had had a thing for her and wanted to own her, and kind of they always wanted to control their stars. Now, for- this was, um, who was the head of the studio? Was it uh, Mayer? Yes, it was Mayer. Louis V. Mayer? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and she wasn't going to sleep with him. And I don't think she slept her way to the top. But he wanted to kind of own her. And they tell you who to marry and who not to marry. And what I've heard is that the main reason that he didn't want them to marry is if they started not getting along, if there was a rift or a problem between them, then this huge money-making duo, just bringing in millions and millions of dollars to the studio, would break apart. And then they would lose money. So it's basically an economic right. issue. So she got married to this guy named Gene Raymond, who was an actor in the studio, who, okay, so this is the information I have, and I actually kind of believe it, who was actually a closeted gay man. 
So they basically pushed her into being his beard. And supposedly he was unable to have children. Or maybe... Maybe he just didn't have sex with her. Yeah, because he didn't want to. Why would he? But apparently he was a pretty bad guy. And she loved Nelson. And he ended up marrying a woman who is not an actor. Poor woman. I don't know who she was. My guess is he you know, he seemed like a good guy and probably treated her very well from all I've heard and, and everything. But she wasn't his real love. And he was having a lifelong affair. Apparently lasted up to her death with Jeanette. And when I say affair, I mean a marriage-like relationship where uh, whether they had sex or not, they were still a bonded pair. I'm, t- I'm totally team... Jeanette and Nelson, but I just wanted to give acknowledgement to his wife's, you know, whatever, her what, whatever her feeling. May have been. And who knows? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was all right with her. Yeah. Maybe uh, she was gay, and she wanted to have a husband, or maybe she didn't care. You know, I, we don't know. Maybe she did care, and she just put up with it. And then uh, Gene Raymond had his, you know, whatever relationships he wanted. Now that he had this screen, and apparently though he was an abusive guy. And he beat Jeanette up. He would, like, hit her and stuff. And one time, he beat her so bad. It was one of those ones where, oh, I walked into a door kind of deal. I think she said she fell or something. And, every, you know, it was one of those things where everybody knows, but then the woman's supposed to say, oh, I walked into a door or I fell down steps or whatever. And Nelson just apparently went over there and beat the crap out of Gene Raymond. I so much, love him for that. I know. So much so that, that Gene Raymond had to spend three weeks in the hospital. Wow. And, of course, the story given out was that he had some kind of stomach flu or something. Yeah. I forget what it, what the story was, but that, that he had some kind of illness while he was while he was recovering in the hospital. But Nelson just beat the crap out of him and said, if you ever touch her again. And, apparently, now, I don't know if this is true, but, uh, but they, there's an indication that she got pregnant eight times while she was... And one of them was before she was with Jean Raymond and had miscarriages and never was able to bear a child. Um, but that maybe one of those miscarriages had to do with her being beaten up by mm. Jean Raymond. It's horrible, that's isn't so it? That's sad, yeah. Yeah, so Nelson finally stepped in and said, okay, that's it. I'm... Way to go, Nelson. Yeah, yeah. And apparently they always kind of lived within proximity to each other. And in the end, they had apartments in adjoining buildings. That's so sweet. I know, it makes me want to cry. And he would visit her regularly. And, you know, he, he would, like, in letters, he would call her my dear wife. Aww. And, you know, and he and then they would joke around and they, you know, with their friends and stuff. And, and she'd, be, she'd be Mrs. Eddie and that kind of stuff. So, and he, you know, was kind of with her in the end. But... When she was writing an autobiography, and she was, uh, again, what they said was she was going to put in about their relationship and then decided not to because he was still alive, and she was, you know, still alive at that time. And, again, it was that old-time thing of the shame of the whole thing and uh, and how it would impact other people. Yeah. Because Eddie did have a child, and, right. you know, so... So, so they continued the denial, even in her autobiography. It doesn't say anything about it. And in fact, she would keep saying how, oh, it just it made them laugh when people would mistake her husband, Gene Raymond, for Nelson Eddy. Because they didn't look totally dissimilar. And you can see it. You can see it on screen. You just, they look at each other with such love in their eyes. And they touch each other with so much tenderness. And, I mean, the thing that really, like, the piece of evidence that most convinced me was um, we were looking at, I think we were oh, yeah. we were revisiting some of the songs that we really enjoyed on YouTube, like clips from the movies. And there was one clip called, like, Nelson Eddy's Famous Hands or something like that. <coughs> 
And it's a clip from one of the films uh, where she's singing and he's sitting there holding her hand, watching her. And he, his hand just doesn't stop moving. He's just like caressing her fingers, moving his, holding her hand, holding it a different way, moving. And so they're like, his famous hands are just these like wandering little finger caressing hands. <laughs> and, uh, but then we watched subsequently, which we'll talk about more, but we watched movies where uh, each of them were solo or they, they paired with other people in those films. And he does not do that. Like, it, no. so it was especially telling to then watch them separately from each other and see like oh yeah the they're extremely good in those roles but the the vibe is just different. it's different yeah it's it's totally different and also in a, in one of their films called sweethearts where they play um they play a married couple and so forth you can just see there's like a scene where the both their families are there and it's you know and there's they're singing going on but it's it's just kind of like a little rollicking scene in the background he's doing something and she's supposed to sit on his knee and and he bobbles it, and she sits down, and he's like, ugh, and she kind of almost falls, ugh, and you can see him looking at her, and they're laughing and smiling, and you can just see, it's so authentic, and you can just see kind of like that relationship and everything. So it, it, it just I, it just enhances the film so much to know that. Yeah. Yeah, and it explains why they have such a kind of synergy, synergy and just this really dynamic kind of, and it's really loving, and so although there's an attraction there, you don't get this idea that there's like, oh, this is like they're trying to show lust. Yeah, it's not like in some films where they're like, oh, these two these two stars were, were sleeping with each other during the film where there's like hot hotness there mm-hmm. that they capture on, on the film. Yeah, it's different than that. It's it's like married love, which yeah. which in, could include that, but it's not like the focus of what they're doing. And in fact, they it was in, I think, Rosemarie is when they really started their relationship. I think that, that that's the other part, like the main component of that singing capon denigration thing is just that Nelson Eddy projects like romantic, vul- vulnerable romanticness. And I think that probably people, men at the time, didn't like it, couldn't yeah. handle it, you know? As the artist and the poet versus uh, yeah. uh, being the uh, the he-man, which I think is what for me overcomes the fact that I don't think he's that that terrifically attractive looking yeah. is is his personality right you know that it is that ro- romanticness but also the impishness and the uh, the just the good humor he just mm-hmm. seems like a really good humored person and he later had a radio show a very famous radio show after their pairing when you know radio was big and i just keep saying this i don't know why this strikes me so funny but his theme song on this show was what is it? Mammy's little baby loves shortening bread, and he would sing it in this operatic tone, and it's just—it's like, oh. well, first of all, oh, we acknowledge that it's that's old timey minstrelly, you know, stuff that's going on there that they were just kind of like absolutely deaf to. Yeah, but should I sing what uh, my imitation? <laughs> uh, or I can look it up on YouTube and, and put oh. a little clip in. Oh yeah, put a little clip in. Yeah, because it's really funny because he goes, and when he gets in this. Mammy's little baby loves shortening bread. That's <laughs> really funny. It is pretty funny. In the entire field of music, there is no more sweet nor appetizing dish than shortening bread. A dish so tantalizing it brings both joy and trouble to hungry little mouths. Serve it up, Nelson. Put on the skillet, put on 
the lid. Mammy's going to bake a little shortening bread. That ain't all she's going to do. Mammy's going to make a little coffee, too. Mammy's little baby loves shortening, shortening. Mammy's little baby loves shortening bread. Mammy's little baby loves shortening, shortening. Mammy's little baby loves shortening bread. Okay. Yeah, so he had that, and, and Jeanette toured, and, and they did films and things after the end of their pairing. But they did eight films together, spanning from 1935 to 1941. So it's a six-year collaboration, and they did two movies a, a year for a couple of years, which is you know, pretty amazing. But that's the turnover rate at the time. So the, the first one that you should see, if you're only going to ever see one, and the first one you should see, it's absolutely the very best is the first one they did in 1935, Naughty Marietta, which we've mentioned before. It is, it has some just rip-roaring tunes. It's got the, it's a movie with the most really great tunes. It's got such a great story. In fact, the story was so great and so perfect for them that every, every single pretty much following film they did was tended to be some kind of variation on that. Mimics the formula, yeah. Yeah, without, there were like two in there that were really different. But otherwise, uh, they took that one, and then there was another big hit they had called Maytime, which we'll talk about. And they would take elements and mix and match elements from those two films. But this is just the best. So good. And uh, the song that we that Zoe sang at the beginning is from that film. Do not be put off by that rendition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll put, a, I'll put the real version in here, too. Yeah. What happens is Jeanette McDonald is a princess and she is going to be forced to marry somebody she doesn't want to marry. And her maid is, what I forget what they call them, a Gisette or something. Anyway, there was some term for it, was going to be a uh, go to the New World as a bride. So she was going to get on the ship and go to the New World and marry some guy over there. That was a common thing. That, and so women got free passage and they got to be married and they got a chance to be out of servitude in Europe. So in order to um, avoid this marriage that Jeanette doesn't want, she gives her maid money so that she can just stay in France and marry the, the man she actually is in love with and wants to be with. But she couldn't marry him because they didn't have any money until that point and takes her place as Marietta. And she goes on the ship and she's in steerage and she goes over to the New World kind of not realizing that when she gets there she's going to be expected to marry somebody. And this is where the naughty part comes in. And of course, they have to whitewash it because of the code. And, and she couldn't be anything bad at all. Uh, so basically, she gets over there and she wants to get, and she doesn't want to get married to any of these guys. That's not what she came for. So they say, well, then what are you here for? Because the only other thing is, rant, rant, an implication, pro, a sex worker. See, I didn't say prostitute. But they don't, they kind of just, oh, they just kind of really slide over it. And she goes, yeah, 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 that's me, that's me. Oh, a woman of entertainment or whatever. I don't know what they call it. And so, oh, well, then you're going to live in this quarter. And so they show her to this, she doesn't uh, live with where the regular people are living. She lives in this old apartment thing. Oh, casquette. They're called the casquette girls. Oh, okay. So that was what Marianne, the girls going over to get married to the casquette girls. Hmm. And so essentially... Nelson comes into the deal is when the girls first get there. The pirates are going to try to kidnap them. That's where the kidnapping comes in. But Nelson uh, and his mercenaries come to save them. And that's where he meets Marietta. And he's very taken with her. And he calls her princess. And she doesn't like that. So then he calls her blue eyes. (laughs) 
And I love this. This is where I really got to love him because he sings this Neath the Southern Moon, which really uses a lot of vocal acrobatics. And he hits the notes and everything. And then when he's done with it, it's hilarious because he looks at her and, he, and she kind of really, oh, she's starting to get attracted to this beautiful voice and everything. And then he looks at her and he goes, every note a jewel. <laughs> and she, she goes, hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so the basis of the plot that they like to use is that um, usually Jeanette McDonald is like a high status, sort of, um, you know, raised to be snotty woman or whatever. And then uh, Nelson Eddy is this like robust, full man. And she, she gets into some situation where he has to help her out in the wilderness or save her from being kidnapped or whatever it is. And she, she's raised to be snooty because in this they make it very clear at the very beginning she's not snooty at all she has no class consciousness at all even though she's a princess right she's really nice she's snooty to him mostly because she doesn't want to be found out to be the princess because they're going to uh, be searching for her the king himself is wanted her to marry this guy and is going to drag her back to france and force her to marry this guy so she's in hiding so she doesn't want her identity to be discerned so that's part of it. And also because he's an arrogant prick at the beginning of this yeah. movie. He's absolutely arrogant. It's hilarious. So uh, anyway, as I said, they come and she says, oh, no, I'm not a casquette girl. I'm really a wank wank. So he, Nelson, they always have him cast as this rogue who has lots of women and is a womanizer. And it's just so funny because... He plays the part, but he's he's clearly not. Yeah. You know, he's clearly a really nice guy. He's no Errol Flynn or yeah, Basil yeah, Rathbone. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, he uh, he's going to take her. He's like, I'll take you there. I'll wank, wank, and we can have a good time. So he takes her to the place where she's going to lodge, and then they finally get them to have their little measure where uh, they sing the um, the Italian street song. Zing, 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 boom, eh. Zing, 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 mandolin will play. Zing, 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 boo, boo, better than I am. <laughs> but I don't pretend to. I know my, I don't have, I don't have a singing voice. You do. You have a beautiful voice. Anyway, they sing this song and he sings first and he, oh yeah, and he's so good. And he's like, wah, wah. and, and they're singing with the, the Italian street singers. And then she jumps in and she's like, 
with her color. She's got a very, very high coloratura soprano. Amazing, amazing voice. And she sings it. She's like, bah, 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 bah. and she can hold a note like forever. And she hits a super high note, like C, C over high C or something like that. And she's like holding it and holding it and holding it. And his reaction is so delightful. Like he's knocked back on his heels and like, whoa, I can't believe it. And she's like, huh. And so she gets one up on him. And then she ousts him because, of course, she's not going to be, she's not going to be naughty. And then she gets a job at a puppet theater, at a marionette theater. And, and she, everybody loves her and she's always so nice. And then what happens? I forget what happens. Oh, yeah. I don't think we need to describe the plot in that much detail. It's basically just the regular right. comedy of errors, you know, eventually they start looking for her and... And they find her and then she's going to be dragged back and then she won't be able to be with him. And so he has to... Okay, we're going to spoil these movies. I mean, you're going to know... You know what's going to happen. I mean, because this is the time. He ends up snatching her up, nabbing her, and taking her off with him into the wilderness where they can be free. Yeah, so it's just so much fun and we really... Extremely highly recommend this one. It is fun and it's very delightful, and they build the relationship through these these little snarking and little that they have at each other. Little they have a repartee, yeah. The repartee, and then the growing admiration that he gets for her abilities and her admiration for his actually sterling qualities and his faithfulness, and then they have the duet "Ah, Sweet Mystery of Life" that has been much lampooned, but they pull it off. I mean, I really feel. The love and I feel the romance and the soaring romanticism of the whole thing. It's great. Yeah. So that's the one you should definitely see. I'm not an Italian, but as for the singing, <clears throat> here goes. Oh, sweet Rosemary, it's easy to see why all who learn to know you, love you. You're gentle and kind, divinely designed.
What did I say? Caroline. Oh, did I say Caroline? Yes. That's too bad. What do you do? Change the name to suit the girl? If it fits the rhythm. Oh, I see. Oh, Genevieve, I love you. Oh, Annabelle, I love you. That must come in very handy. Like I said, they did eight films together. And they did, the next film they did up was basically really a remake of the same kind of, of the same basic story, but in the Yukon, in the Canadian, and he's a Mountie in that one. That's fun, yeah. And yeah. she's a famous singer. Yeah. And she's looking for her brother, so there's a cameo in there, and it happens to be one of the early roles of Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, James Stewart. And he's, like, skinny and gawky, and he plays yeah. her brother, and he's a ne'er-do-well brother. And he's committed a crime, and so she's trying to save him from being arrested or and executed or whatever. And she gets up there, and this is what causes the miscomprehension between the two of uh, of them, of her and Nelson, is that she's hiding why she's there, what she's doing, because she's trying to save her brother. And of course, he's there trying to find her brother and arrest him unbeknownst. But apparently, you know, they both kind of find out in the end. And then they fall in love, and then all of a sudden, her brother is gone. I mean, where did he go? What happened? Nothing, nothing is said about him. Did he escape? Did he get killed? Is Nelson going to continue looking for him? We don't know. It's just like, it's sort of like he never existed. He's just like erased from the face of time. It's just pretty strange. I almost feel like there must have been something going on because Jimmy Stewart's in like two scenes or something. I almost feel like there's something going on where they shot other scenes with him and then they just scrapped the material. Yeah, well, they they edited it out because it was dragging the movie down. It's very likely because he's just, I mean, he's he's a MacGuffin. He's just a MacGuffin. So he could have been a satchel full of money for, you know, whatever. And I think they also... Maybe they just had a hard time reconciling the fact that Nelson Eddy's role is that he needs to capture her brother and bring him to justice and be executed. He's full of integrity, so he couldn't just let her brother go because it's her brother. Or no, but, she, but he could not kill. Usually, what they do is they have him be killed. Right. That he falls off a mountain, or, or sure. you know, some bear kills him, or something. You know, so so they definitely can remove the problem and fill in that hole. I think it. I think you're right. I think that there must have been other scenes that they just edited out, and so he just absolutely disappears as if he never existed, and they ride off into the sunset. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but it's it's an it's an enjoyable film. It's not one of my my most highly recommended, and that was done in 1936. And then now we come to Maytime, which is their third movie. 1937, Maytime is one that is very interesting because I have to say, when I first saw it back in my 20s, I fucking hated it. Mm. I hated this film. I just, I hated it because I was really against the patriarchy. And I found this film, when I watched it the first time, I interpreted it as being extremely patriarchal because basically the, the, the basic story is that this beautiful singer, she is going for a career. She ends up choosing the career over her love for Nelson. And basically, Nelson gets killed when he's still young. And then she lives the rest of her life being a famous singer and then retiring. But she has no one. She doesn't have a husband or children. Because their love was so great and so pure that she could never, ever find anybody else, obviously. 
Uh, and then she's old and she's alone and she meets this young singer, but her boyfriend is like, well, but if you go to the big city to become a great singer, then we won't have our relationship and we won't be together. And it seemed to me that, that Jeanette was telling her this story in order to encourage her to give up her career and go with the man because then she would have the love. So what really, I think, set me against it was that, is that, oh, well, you can't have both. Or that the man can't go, okay, well, I can, you know, he's like some kind of, I don't know, he's an office worker. He can't go to the big city and get a job and support your dreams. And that was the expectation at the time. Although, of course, they kept reinforcing it and trying to force it into the culture because it wasn't always that way. But it was expected that the woman follows the man around and, and follows his fortunes. And that, that so enraged me that I just hated the whole damn movie. So now that I've gotten older and mellowed, I actually like it and consider it highly recommended. <laughs> and I actually was going, oh, I, this movie's so terrible, Zoe, you don't have to watch it. And then I rewatched it and go, oh, it's actually got a lot of really good stuff in it. So Zoe, here's some scenes you should watch. <laughs> so there is that aspect to it. It was not as bad as I thought in terms of trying to push her into this young man's arms and choosing not to have a career, but it still was kind of there. That, okay. But if you can discount that, which I think you have to do with these old movies, a lot of times you have to overlook a lot of unconscious isms going on in these movies if you want to enjoy anything. And so there are a couple great things about this film. Number one, John Barrymore. Now John Barrymore would die in about 10 years or so, within the next 10 years, of acute alcoholism. And so he was really addicted and at this, even though he was considered in his heyday the greatest actor, the greatest American actor that ever was and ever would be, maybe, they thought, he was very extremely talented and had a lot of energy on screen, but he was so kind of degraded, and that really shows in the character as he's playing his character. is very kind of a degraded character and heavy and angry, and, and it worked really well for the character. And he is uh, Jeanette's mentor. And he's the one who makes her famous and, and gets her all the opportunities. And, and he's the Pygmalion to her, Galatea. And so she owes him big time. And he's in love with her and wants to marry her. And so she goes, you know, I'm not really in love with you. And he goes, well, but love will come and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, okay. So she agrees to marry him. Even though every time he goes in for a kiss, she's like, you go, dude, read the writing on the wall. You know, yeah. you're not going to get, you're not going to get what you want out of this. Cause you know, and it's indicated pretty clearly. He wants to have hot, passionate sex with her. And she's kind of like, you know, I'll marry you. I'll do my best. And so in the meantime, she meets a young, struggling singer, Nelson Eddy. When she goes out one day incognito to a tavern and he's singing and he's charming and he's sweet and he's just like, oh, come and have dinner with me. And so he basically, he gets her to come to his apartment, poor, poor apartment, really cute scene. They sing, they have food, she's in love with him. And then, and this is the irritating part. She still marries John Barrymore and they tour the world and she's being a good wifey except that she's not hot in bed for him. And they indicated this in the movie. And he's going, when are you going to love me the way I want you to love me? And she's like, I told you, dude, you know. So essentially, Nelson gets cast in the role opposite her in this very passionate love story. And this is number two. 
of what I think the greatest scene they did together where they actually are going to be pulled apart and not be able to be together and they sing a duet. It was so beautiful, so heartfelt, so intense. I could really feel it. It was just so, it was just great, greatness. And basically John Barrymore, he gets it too. And the demon of jealousy flares out of his eyeballs and he ends up shooting Nelson dead. At the end, their ghostly spirits are reunited and they walk down the aisle of flowers. In a shower of blossoms to heaven forever together. And they get a hot, passionate sex in heaven. <laughs> so actually, that is really worth watching. Just be aware of the patriarchal stuff. You could recommend a couple others, and then you can research a few for yourself if you're interested. Then the next great one that we really liked was 1938, The Girl of the Golden West. Basically, it's a, it's a frontier story. She's a cowgirl, and she goes around in the boots, and she talks like this, but she sings like an angel. And she sings Ave Maria in this beautifully. And the guy who loves her, creating the triangle, is played by Walter Pigeon, who's a smart, uh, card-sharp, slick dude. He's a sheriff. And he's also a sheriff, but he's not totally honest. But I always like, well, I think Walter Pigeon's really handsome. He's really handsome. You know, really handsome guy. So it's like, oh, okay, he's kind of, it's nice to see Walter Pigeon. And Nelson, he plays such a great character in this. He's little gringo. And little gringo is adopted by these uh, Mexican bandits. And he's like adopted by the head bandit so that when the bandit dies, he becomes the head bandit. But he pretends when he's a bandit to he wears a gigantic sombrero and a mask. And he speaks with a, a faux Mexican accent. Yeah. Oh, to to disguise his identity so oh, that he God. takes it off and no one would ever know no. that he is the bandit. <laughs> exactly. But of course he's a, a bandit with a heart of gold because he takes most of the money he steals and gives it to the mission church with the very honorable and wise um, pastor. Right. And, the, he's a, the the, uh, the monk or the, the priest. Yeah, padre. Yeah. Padre. <laughs> so it must be a priest, right? And the, the one thing about this film that it helps ease the friction of the time warp is that at least three times in the movie, they say outright, well, this was the land of the Indians before we got here. Or the reason he gives the money to the church is he says to the Padre, give this money to the native people because it's theirs anyway, because it came out of their land. Mm -hmm. So they acknowledge very explicitly uh, the injustice of the land being taken away and the native peoples being driven off of it. So even though there aren't any native characters that are particularly highlighted, they are not denigrated, they're not uh, there for comic effect, and they were, are given uh, at least the principle of what happened is acknowledged freely. So it, it helps a lot, which I was very surprised at when I saw this. So that was very good. Anyway, of course, there's all kinds of misunderstandings and back and forth. And then Nelson, this is one of his tropes in some of his movies where he takes on alternate personas. So uh, he tries to rob Jeanette and then he lets her go. And so then later he sees her in town and he's like, why? And his loud eyeballs go on springs, boinga, boinga, boinga. And he hears her sing, it's like, woo. So he's really wants to get a wooga, wooga with her. And so he waylays a soldier who's supposed to be there to escort her somewhere to a gala. She's going to ball, yeah. And he takes his uniform and he takes his place. And then he takes her off with her willingness 
two sing in the moonlight together. It's very good, fun, very cute, very, very cute. I love it when he does those impersonations. I think he, he just does it really well. Yeah. And ultimately, of course, we all know they're going to be together in the end. And then there's just one other uh, little thing that I want to note is that Buddy Ebsen plays a part in this. Now, for those of you who are not, uh, you know, who've ever seen the Beverly Hillbillies TV series from the 1960s, Buddy Ebsen played Jed Clampett, who found the bubble and crude and took his family to Beverly Hills. Uh-huh. The hills, I mean, Beverly and uh, it, was, it was a terrible show that I saw probably every episode of because everything on television was terrible at the time and that's what my brothers and sisters wanted to watch. Buddy Ebsen also played the husband or the ex-husband of Audrey Hepburn in Breakfast at Tiffany's when he comes to visit her. So he plays that very sad character. Buddy Ebsen was a song and dance man, which is really interesting when you look at him. You don't realize that he was on vaudeville and Broadway as a big song and dance man, and you don't really get to see him do any of that stuff. But he is an adorable character in this who kind of is in love with her. and all, He does all shooks, and he's like one of these guys, but he pulls it off really well because he, he is really actually a very good actor. I think he's attractive because he's very young in this one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's pretty adorable in this. Uh, sweetheart. Uh, that's the one we talked about where they were married and that, that's that scene where they kind of bobbled the, the knee kneel or whatever he did and, and she almost fell over. They actually play already married couple. And basically the, just the whole movie is them. They're famous singers, very much in demand, always running around working and they've got, each have families that are kind of sponging off them and they're all really funny characters in their family and always trying to get money off them so they have to work extra hard to kind of keep going and they just want to get away together and have like a honeymoon well not even a honeymoon but a second honeymoon and get away together and be alone and have like romantic time together yeah it's really that's it that's sweet wholesome they don't have you know fabricated conflict between the two of them or anything so it's kind of a, it's a refreshing movie it's a little different and it's a great showcase for their singing because they do a bunch of numbers together and this one is in color and it's really cute and she has great out, great outfits in this totally, movie. And she, yeah. she has just amazing clothes and you get to see the color and just oh high fashion stuff really wonderful and so I, we do highly recommend that one it's just refreshing and light especially if they've had a hard day mm-hmm. that's a good one to watch and then the next one that, that we do highly recommend is New Moon, and that's in 1940. These last movies are right before World War II was declared with the United States. And New Moon is another black and white one, another period piece. It starts out kind of similar to like um, Naughty Marietta and Rosemary in the sense that she is a French noblewoman who's on a ship, and then he is he is a nobleman. He is considered to have committed treason because he's on the side of the revolution. Right. Okay. He's anti-monarchist. He's a class traitor. He's a class traitor. And so what he does is, in order to uh, escape, he dresses up as a peasant. He commits an infraction that will cause... Actually, it wouldn't be misdemeanor. It's actually a felony. Like, probably stole some bread. That's all you really had to do. And it was bad enough to get him transported to the New World. So he saved his life by being transported... And he has a plan to have another ship come. He's got this all set up. He's going to come and he's going to free all of the prisoners, not just himself, but all of the prisoners, and they're going to get away. So that was his plan to escape the guillotine. Because even just FYI, for those who don't know this already, is that the regime, Louis XVI, they used the guillotine, and it was then adopted by the revolutionaries as their 
or method of choice. So anyway, he's in the hold and it's really crappy down in the hold, surprise. And he's kind of the leader and he's saying, we want bread, we need bread, we need air, you know. Ah. And then the people upstairs, are they're all like complaining because this is all noisy and, and interfering with their singing and their frivolities. And they're told that, oh, they're, they're fine down there. They're just like being difficult and rowdy and, and bad. It's not that there's anything going wrong down there. And so then we have the mistaken identity bit again that I love it so much. So Nelson, he's waiting to talk to the captain as a prisoner. And Jeanette comes in because she wants to complain to the captain about how rowdy and loud the prisoners are. And she thinks that he is... He snags a coat off the door when she comes in, and it's like a military coat. So she thinks he's an officer, and so he, they're, they're having a conversation kind of as equals. is complaining, and he kind of explains the situation. And they do this with witty banter. I'm sorry, I can't even reproduce it for you. And she's like, oh, well, in that case, I won't complain to the captain about that. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't know that was the situation, of course. So that shows she's a mensch, right? And then the story just goes on from there, where she continues to think that he's this officer and she's like looking around for him when she got the ship and he's obviously in the hold and it ends up that she ends up buying him right. for her plantation. Right. Yeah. So she, she then it's revealed that he is a prisoner. She buys him. He becomes the butler in her house, but then because he's really a nobleman, he has such exquisite taste and he knows <laughs> cause he's a nobleman. He knows the etiquette. He's, he's so popular with everyone. He's always singing and it really annoys her. And she, well, and also, but he knows every strategy that she should use to become the queen of society, which is what she wants. Right. So he knows like, what the place setting should be, what the food should be, what the music should be. He knows exactly what to do, and that irks her no end because now he's got it over on her because he can tell her what she needs to do, so she has to rely on him. So it's pretty cute. Well, and so the, the plot of this movie just goes on and on. Really I, don't, I don't know how they crammed so much in there. So things happen, social events, blah, blah, blah. Then he's ready to enact his prison break with all of his fellows, and so they start to do oh, right. that. And then she realizes through whatever machinations of the plot who he is and that he's in danger. She kind of helps him get away. And so they get away on a ship. She also ends up having to go on away on a ship for some reason. And then the ship is <laughs> shipwrecked on an island. And they all have to form a, you know, a functional a community. community on the island. And of course he's the leader because as an aristocrat he's the natural leader because he's more intelligent and he knows everything. But he enacts, you know, a perfect sort of democracy on yeah. the island. And so the, it's so interesting. I feel like the politics, maybe the writers of this movie they're were socialist. a little bit leftist. Yeah, yeah oh, so, definitely. So their community is like a perfect socialist utopia. And she ends up rallying all the women and showing her character. So then they're both so popular and everybody, you know, all the men want all to right. be with Jeanette. All the women want to be with Eddie. And so the two of them just put aside all of the friction that's been created over all the things in the past and pretend to be a couple right, so right, that right. they can get everyone off their backs. But then, of course, they actually fall in love. <laughs> that's right. And as they're falling in love, all of a sudden they're hearing, oh, a ship has come to pick them up. And everyone's afraid that they've actually, it's a French ship that's coming to, like, finally arrest Nelson Eddie. And then so they're all afraid and they're ready to go to war. And then it turns out that it was British ship and they're all like, Hi, comrades, you know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Enjoy your island. And yeah. that's the end of the movie. <laughs> oh, that's right. That is such a hilarious... I mean, it is. 
clearly, I think this was your favorite one. It's next to Naughty Marietta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Naughty Marietta is my favorite as kind of the quintessence of yeah. what the genre and everything is. And then this one was my favorite in terms of just being kind of weird, but also quality yeah, and yeah. fun. Yeah, totally. It was fun. I And I started watching it because... The way we work is that Zoe does the editing, so she puts quite a bit of time into these these productions. I do the sorry. The way we work on the podcast, yeah, the podcast. Is that I do the editing for the podcast. Yeah, episode. not that we make movies or anything like that. We didn't make any of these movies, and so <laughs> and so then I'm the research guy. I think we probably have told you guys this before, but sometimes the research requires watching a lot of movies, and I try to alleviate Zoe's burden. By going, okay, these are the ones you need to see in order to have a good conversation. But I kept watching these movies going, she really needs to see them all. I only had her watch certain scenes from Maytime just because I didn't really need to see it again right away. And then I rewatched The Girl of the Golden West twice so that you would watch it. And then I started watching New Moon and I went, well, this one's good too. I'm going to stop and we're... You know, and we started yeah. over and, and you watched it because it was just so charming. Yeah. And so fun. And it just, they did, they know how to keep keep it moving. These things never feel, well, not never, but they usually don't feel dragged down. And then the very last one they did together in 1941 was I Married an Angel, where Nelson marries a literal angel. She's actually an angel, yeah. which is so weird. She falls to earth, she's got wings, she's all innocent. and Yeah, I don't know, it's a very strange one, because, I mean, the premise is already kind of surreal, but it, it really goes into surreal territory. It does. And... There is a dinner party a fancy dinner party that is so weird. I can't even begin to tell you about it. Amazing clothes. Yeah, I guess I, I won't try to explain no. any of the plot or anything. It's just, it's it's really interesting if you're enough of a... It, it's really off the beaten track and weird. It's just kind of interesting. And then there's a big long sequence where she's buying clothes, which is amazing, which I loved. And she obviously doesn't have the wings at that point. Because she has to give up her wings. Yeah, I think that's the thing. They go through a series of choices where she goes down different life paths and he realizes that they're all shit. And so yeah. then he, in the end, he's like, whoa, never mind. Let's go back to the way things were. So totally weird. Anyway, that's our Jeanette and Nelson. We highly, highly urge you to watch Naughty Marietta. Check it out for yourself. We really think for most movie buffs of the time, you'll like that. I think it even gets overlooked a lot by old-timey movie aficionados. We hope we are enjoying our, our various series and our movies and things like that. We are going to be uh, looking at doing some other really fun stuff. Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, uh, Screwball Comedies, maybe Preston Sturgis, a director. Yeah, so we're you know, putting together some more fun stuff for you guys. Have a great month. Month, everyone. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.